we seem to come down to a, for most investors, an idea that something like 65% stocks, 35% bonds is an intelligent al allocation. Now, we, we know stocks are almost certain to do better in the long run just because of the nature of the capital markets. Uh, so we've already said we want to do something to give us a little you know, anchor to windward, right. dry powder, call it what you will, uh, to protect you against behavioral mistakes and to give you some stability in your account and usually more income, although not much more today. Uh, and uh, so if it's 65, 35, and for whatever sound reason, not emotional reason, you can come up with, and, you, and, and the market looks substantially overvalued, don't, don't worry about it if you think it's 20% overvalued or 25% or undervalued by, by the same amount. But if it, if it seems to get out of line by a substantial amount, take the 65 to 50. Take the 35 to 50 and be 50-50. But the idea of an all-or-nothing approach, well, I sold all my stocks yesterday. You're going to have a long, hard investment lifetime. Right. Who can do that? Right. And we still know people left uh, a lot of mutual funds. We did not have a much of a problem here because of our index base, but who left the market after it went down 55, 50% in, in 2007, 2009, February or March of 2009, and they got out and they haven't gotten back yet. Well, I mean, the mutual fund uh, flow data is, is enormously powerful. Yeah. Right. Everybody's flooded into bonds and, uh, and out of equities, and we've had a fabulous equity uh, market. Yeah, and I mean, it's unbelievable, the strength of the equity market. Exactly. Uh, but I don't, yeah. I don't see it quite yet being substantially overvalued, enough to, enough to make a change. But so again... What would you do in a, in a time frame of the late 90s? So... You have stocks at 30 times plus. You've got bonds, uh, investment-grade bonds, kind of 7%. And so, you know, there's a case to be made where, no, just kind of pick your asset allocation, pick your index fund, and ride it out. Uh, but those do seem to be extremes where logic kind of dictates that you really probably ought to do uh, some adjustment. I hate to say this because it makes me into a market timer, but of course you're absolutely right. And to make matters worse, if I deny it, I would have to expunge uh, my recorded comments at a Morningstar conference in the spring of uh, 2000 when the market was at its all-time high. And I said to Don Phillips, he did a one-on-one -on -one interview. We did two sessions, and the combined attendance in the two sessions was more than the attendance at the meeting. <laughs> I can't understand why anybody would have wanted to hear that twice. But I said at one point when he asked me about that, I said, you know, Don, with bonds yielding around 7% today, the stock market yielding 1%, the stock market being at that point closer to 40 times earnings than the 30, I think it's impossible in the next decade, and I look at things in decade lengths, um, that, uh, bonds will, uh, that stocks will outperform bonds. So returns on stocks ought to be you know, pretty close to nominal, and the returns on bonds going to be 7% a year. That's doubling your money in the decade. And then I looked at him and said, you know, Don, sometimes I sit here and worry why I have any money in stocks whatsoever. And I was in the process then, and I can't remember the exact timing, but obviously around that time, of reducing my own uh, equity position from about, it's normal of about 70, 75%. I don't even remember, maybe 80%, down to about 25 or 30%. And I did that. So, uh, but, but mainly, well, importantly, because of that, everybody says, you know, you knew what was going to happen. 
Now, I suppose you could argue that I did, but that, that I was also, you know, my heart was failing and my life was endangered. I wanted to make sure my, what, what part of it, what a kind of a state I had, mostly my retirement plan here, was protected for my family. So it was a, it was a personal financial decision, greatly abetted by the fact that it made totally financial and economic sense. And uh, how many times in a lifetime does that come along? Well, I went through the crash in 72, 74. That was before the, after the merger. And uh, that was not as easy to see coming. But what had, went from a moderately overvalued position to a greatly undervalued position. Stock yields got to 7% in 74. And nobody said, why don't we buy stocks? And uh, with bond yields... It, they had to have higher yields than bonds to make them interesting, right? Uh, and then when Paul Volcker comes in and some of the yields on, say, long-term treasuries, intermediate-term treasuries range around 15%, nobody thought I ought to get out of stocks and into bonds. It was not so much that stocks were overpriced. It was the bonds were the steel of the century. Right. And this last 50% decline, one of, I think, four I've experienced, um, was they're all different. That's one really important thing. Mm -hmm. Don't say, I've seen all this before. You never... Very few times has the same thing happened twice and uh, in, in the financial markets. The same problems happen twice. Yeah, it's, each, one, each one is its own. <laughs> There's some, some statement like uh, all happy families are alike and all unhappy families uh, are different, but all, all unhappy families are, are alike in their own way or something like that. And uh, the, the problem here is that all, all these bear markets are very, very different, inspired by different things, sometimes mathematics, sometimes investors' emotions, and sometimes by external factors. And what really happened is we should have seen any of us, and I didn't see it because I wasn't involved in that, the mortgage market that was developing. Catastrophic. If I'd spent eight hours with a salesman for Washington Mutual uh, or countrywide, right. even better, on the West Coast, just go on that salesman, the house to house. You know, here you can borrow $300,000, put $200,000 into a house of which I'll get you a $200,000 mortgage and keep a hundred for yourself. And you're making 17,000 a year, go ahead and do it. And uh, you would have been, if you'd known that, and I think it's arguable that I should have known it, uh, but not many people did. So the result of this was not only those insane mortgages, but the insanity of being able to sell them to a bank. You didn't have to worry about whether that customer was any good. That was up to the next guy, and he didn't pay much attention. And the next guy, along with these collateralized debt obligations, played the law of averages that just wasn't going to work, given those circumstances. Nobody thought enough about the risk. So what that gave rise to was first huge amounts of spending from equitizing the value of houses. In other words, the economy was pumped up by something like $2 trillion in that period for people taking money out of their houses to spend. Well, you can only do that once. Maybe they thought they could do it more, but those things don't happen like that. And then in, in the following act shows that you're trying to restore all that, so you're spending $2 trillion less to restore your equity or you know, you, you can't keep saving like that. Uh, and the other thing that happened was it basically put the financial system under enormous pressure and one entire industry, banking, basically eliminated all its dividends. This does not happen very often. 
this was the worst decline in dividends. And they I think. Be large dividend payers on a relative basis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But but the, it, it it took the the S and P dividend down about twenty two percent. And if you look at the long chain of S and P dividends, have your students just chart the S and P dividend from nineteen twenty six, and it goes. That's the depression, and then it kind of grows and grows and grows. There are little bumps, but this is the this is the biggest bump right. in dividends since the depression, and. Uh, so this was, this was a market collapse that was born by essentially an economic or financial collapse. I mean, collapse might be a little bit strong, but if an industry eliminates its dividend, that is not something that will happen in the marketplace uh, without recognition. So it was, this was a, a more logical collapse if we'd only seen it coming. First, let me differentiate between the active managers, let's call them a stock picker. And for each good stock picker, of course, it's a bad stock picker. But no way around these things. Uh, and then there's asset allocation. Uh, how much do you want in the stocks and how much do you want in bonds? To me, that is by and large a buy and hold proposition. Don't do something, just stand there. No matter, almost no matter what happens. And maybe no matter what happens. Uh, for example, even this 50% decline. You know, you ended up with more money. Uh, seven years later, from 2007 to 2014, if you just stayed in and just taken your lumps, and it came back if you were in an in, in all market index fund. So um, asset allocation is a little different, but there's one thing that is the same. Please don't let anybody forget this. If you're smart enough to reduce your allocation to stocks and increase your allocation to bonds, Somebody else is reducing their allocation to sure. bonds and increasing their allocation to stocks. And the, the, the logic is identical. So if the system is roughly which it is, uh, depending on how you count the Treasury's debt, uh, which is another interesting story, but roughly a 60-40 uh, situation. So you have, the, you have the, the total market allocation for the typical investor, and the variations are not huge. You know, somebody's going to be 100% in equities, which by definition is the best long-term strategy, uh, and yet you, you may not be able to handle the bumps. Well, let me correct myself. No, 100% equities is not the best long strategy. 100% equities leveraged, two to one, three to one, just so long as you get someone to bail you out at the bottom, right. and you can, you can pay them back later. This is not an easy thing to do, but we all know those fundamentals. And we all know that allocation for the system is, is fixed for all of us. So we're trading back and forth with one another, trying to prove we're smarter. And I'd, I'd say this about Warren. You know, when he, he, he's, as everybody knows, decided to, in the, in the money he's leaving to his widow in a trust, he has directed to be invested 90% in the S&P 500 index fund. Not a bad a Vanguard S and P 500 index fund, I should say, because he said it too. And uh, so, if, and his, this big bet he has with a hedge fund, which he's winning by a huge amount happily, and they're kind of random events. Uh, his his bet, his side of the bet, is not that Berkshire will do better than the hedge fund, but that the S and P 500 will right. do better. So he's he's a uh, a huge supporter and has been for as long as I've known him of the index fund, and indeed. When I talked to him about Little Book of Common Sense Investing, I said, you know, I'm going to write in the conclusion. I was just working on the book when I had dinner with him. I guess that would be back in around 2006. 
And I said, I'd concluded that Benjamin Graham would be an indexer. Do you think that's fair? And because uh, everything changed. You know, Benjamin Graham recanted a lot of, it's hard to find value anymore. There are too many people looking for it. Uh, and he said, of course he was an indexer fund. I know because he told me so. And that was good enough for me, so I put it in the book. But uh, so these are the verities of investing, that you're going to depart from this universe of stocks and bonds. Uh, if you depart, somebody else does the exact opposite thing. It's a closed universe. And so in that sense, and I love this point, it's a little bit difficult to do uh, without a chart, but the chart is entitled, we're all indexers. Look at the total stock market. That's what we all own. Now slice about a third of that out, and those are indexers who know the value of indexing. So they own an index fund, and with no trading, arguably no trading. Then look at the other two-thirds. Those people own the market index by definition, those stockholders. But they don't, they're not satisfied with that. They want to bet against each other, and therefore they lose the index by the amount of transaction costs they have. None of this is complicated. Uh, Warren wrote this great piece, which I edited a little bit, uh, from, for my book, Little Book of Common Sense, about the Gottrocks family. And they were fine as long as they kept to their own devices. But when they started to think they could, could beat each other, then they started to do worse. And the costs went up, and the taxes went up. And they did worse and worse until they went back to just buy and hold and don't fight, fight over this with each other. These are verities.